on Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1. Streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show. You are listening to The Jam Price Show, and today my guest is director-producer V. Scott Balsarek, and we're we'll talking about his brand-new documentary called Satan in Adam. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hi. How are you guys doing? Great, thanks. How are you today? Good. Good, good. Tell uh, This is really an interesting story about Satan and Adam. Just so the audience has an idea, can you give us a little bit of the background of this uh, documentary and of this relationship? Well, um, these guys uh, played on the street in Harlem in, in the mid-'80s um, when Harlem wasn't sort of a, a place where many, uh, at least white people, went. And so um, Adam, who was a sort of you know Columbia graduate, uh, Ivy League kind of guy, uh, also a harmonica player, was passing through Harlem on, on his way teaching a class. Um, he was a sort of a, a tutor and uh, sees this guy playing on the street and and sort of gets it gets enough uh, passion in him to actually approach him. And uh, it was a magical moment when they when they played together because um, uh, Sterling McGee, uh, aka Satan, he never let anyone play with him. And you know it was, it was a bad neighborhood. It was it, it was something where it was like that was his turf. And um, Adam was maybe perceived by some as encroaching upon it. You know. And so what he did was uh, they had this magical moment where they where they they just jammed together. Satan allows it to happen. I don't know why because he had turned away a lot of people in the past and. It, it just, uh, that was like 1986, and, you know, they stayed together for, you know, 30-some 30, 30 years after that, so. Absolutely amazing. It really is amazing uh, how they did get started. And so, during the time when they got together in 1986, that there were a lot of racial tensions going on, particularly in Harlem. I, I moved to New York City in 1987, uh, so I'm very well aware of what was going on during that time period. Uh, talk a little bit about that, and, and how they they're playing together may have helped some of the ease some of those tensions perhaps do you think yeah they did you know it's funny um they they, they ended up becoming sort of a cultural symbol at least in that neighborhood and then later when they when they started playing worldwide they, they continued that, that being sort of a, a cultural uh, a symbol of a sort of peace and unity amongst uh, the, the races as it were um but you know what, what? What? When I was starting the documentary, I, I kind of felt like, well, they were just playing in Harlem. Were they really that you know that well known outside of that area? Really, what kind of impact did they have? But when I interviewed um, the Reverend Al Sharpton, who of course was at the center of all of that, yes. he totally he totally knew who they were. He totally knew who they were, and and uh, he could speak on it. And I, I was like, wow, th- they did have an impact that that I, even me as a filmmaker starting out didn't really realize. Um, now, if, of course, it was just in Harlem, but, you know, you live there and you, you know what I'm talking about. It, it, it does, seeing that, you know, in, in amidst all this racial strife, I think uh, it sends a powerful message, albeit that it's a, a super, you know, there's just two guys on a street corner. But I think that it's, it does, it did send a, a powerful message. And that, that was backed up by Al Sharpton, you know. Reverend Al Sharpton knowing who they were. Yeah, and that's, um, yeah, that, because he was very front and center. Reverend Al Sharpton was very front and center during that time period in New York City up in Harlem. So, uh, yeah, very interesting that, you know, he did. But I think a lot of people did uh, know him. Tell us, I mean, I thought the U2 story was very fascinating. You want to tell, talk a little bit about that? 
Uh, yeah, the, that, that was another interesting thing is uh, when I was able to get um, uh, the edge to, to be in the film, I, it, that came with a little bit of a caveat because I was wondering, like, does he even remember this? You know, I mean, of course, they're in the film, but he remembered every every moment of, about that, um, which I which I think. And, and the, the things he echoed, the things that are echoed in the movie, he he also uh, had mentioned where um, that that the whole crew didn't really want to go to Harlem. They were they were sort of freaked out by it, just like Adam might have been, or other people might might have been about entering that neighborhood at yes, that time. Definitely. Yeah, uh, and, and, but they went anyway. And uh, um, he was so so impressed by their their symbol, the symbol of what they they, they uh, who they were, and I felt like. He saw he, he he put them on the album as well, which is which was crazy because no one's ever been on a U two album outside of just you know of course just U two and um, he talks about it as a like a, a prescient moment because the the film Rattle and Hum uh, sort of addressed some of those American themes uh, of you know blues uh, affecting rock and all other forms of music jazz and what have you um, and so just getting him involved and for him to remember that event of them walking up to uh, Satan and Adam and it being important enough to him in his mind for them to not only put it in the movie, do- their documentary about on home, but also on an album on their album uh, was um, just remarkable to me. And he remembered again, just like Al Sharpton, he remembered every moment of that. It really it was, truly it, go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's just, it was just super impressive to me that, that, that he would, you know, remember every moment um, and what it meant to him and what it meant to, to the band. And that's just really special for me because I, you know, I, these guys are huge rock stars, right? you know, and so you would, you would think that it, it didn't have an impact on them, but it really, it really did. So, and why do you think they did um, have Adam and Satan on their album? Because it's never been, they've never allowed anybody else to be on any of their albums. So why do you think, uh, what was it about Adam and Satan that made them want to have them included in, in their album? I think what, you know, Rattle and Home about is discovering American music. You know, he had told me that, you know, you two, they were, you know, they were kind of punk musicians at, at the time. And they sort of, they did not want to be equated with uh, what a lot of British artists were doing at the time. For instance, they were they were playing Amer- Rolling Stones, for example. They were basically playing American blues music and just sort of doing it in their own way. They didn't really want to do that, but they, they came to discover that, that, that the uh, blues music in, in New York I'm sorry. Blues music in uh, in uh, the United States did have an impact on them, and th- that album was a, sort of a, like a sort of a discovery, a rediscovery of that music, which they had sort of shunned. You know what I mean? Uh, when they were when they were starting out, they they're kind of more attached to the punk movement at first but they they came to realize that you know you can't you can't get away from this music because it's it's really the basis of so much uh of our culture and it you know it all started in america and i think that satan and adam were, were sort of almost like an allegory to, to them they're they're representative of this black white mixture that creates this amazing music that came you know only out of america it it truly it truly does it really does a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about Satan and his background, so so the audience knows a little bit about him and what his real name is, and they're probably familiar with him, I'm sure. Uh, his real name is Sterling McGee. Um, he uh, started out playing um, 
he he basically was a sort of a touring musician. He you know he played with King Curtis, uh, Marvin Gaye, James Brown, Etta James, and that's just a few. There there are there are others, but those are sort of the, the highlights, as it were. Um, he also then he did have a, his own uh, short career. He had a few songs that he recorded for Ray Charles's label, um, which was called Tangerine, and um, never quite broke out. But he did have a, a few uh, regional hits. Um, and so, yeah, so that was that was his background. But I think after that whole stint of just being a, a session, you know, a side musician, a side man, basically, and then coming into uh, the seventies, his his wife sort of tragically passed, and he sort of changed his whole uh, persona into this this Satan character who who played on the street uh, only for people in his neighborhood who. He kind of ministered to, in a sense. He be, sort of became sort of the, the, the preacher of Harlem, the music man, the the one who uh, supplied them with change. He would give away his change to them, and, and he sort of became this sort of yeah, like a almost like a minister minister of the streets. You know, his, his whole story told through music, and he had sort of a message in the music. Uh, and um, he, I think that's what he wanted to do. He uh, he, he he never uh, after that period of the sixties. He never really sought out to re-enter the music business like we know people to do. So he was just happy doing what he was doing on the street and helping others. I think that's truly amazing. Yes, it was to me. That was one of the big things when I discovered that. I I was like, wow, this guy is, this is outside of just music. This, this is more than more than music. There's, right. there's something else here, and that's, that's what kind of kept me going uh, on the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more of a spiritual experience in, in many ways. How did you get involved in this, Scott? Because this took, what, almost 23 years or more of your yeah. life to put this together. That's quite a passion project. So tell us about how you got involved and why you stayed involved for so long. Well, I um, I w- I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I think it was like 91 ish. I think it was 91 or 92, somewhere in there. I was uh, I'm a musician. Okay, first of all, I'm a musician. I have a lot of musician friends living in Pittsburgh, and I'm, I'm a friend of mine was like, "Hey, you got to see this this band." Um, and he he was like, "They're they're great." And uh, um, I didn't want to go out, but he he sort of said, "Hey, you really you really got to come out and see these guys. They're amazing." You know what I mean? And so I. Uh, um, I begrudgingly went. I, it, was, it was a cold night, I remember, and uh, I begrudgingly went. And uh, I'm walking into the bar, and I hear this sound that's like a band. You know what I mean? But then you turn the corner, and it's just two people. So I was immediately blown away by uh, their sound, um, that they could create that much sound. Uh, just, just these two people. And Sterling, as a musician, he was just off the charts. His abilities on guitar and the fact that he was playing what, in essence, is drums and singing, and it was super funky. It wasn't wasn't your straight up, you know, blues type riff that we all know. It was kind of like a funk version of it, and it was so almost ethereal. Uh, Adam's harp sort of floated on top, and he would sort of hit these jazz notes, and um, and then he would dip into some like sort of like more funky style playing. Anyways, I was just blown away, but uh, that was the musician side of me that was blown away. But the other part was just them. They, they, they. I remember thinking it was sort of pithy, but I was thinking that they were sort of an allegory. You know, this is an allegorical story of American music. The, the sort of old blues artists met by the 
you know, the younger uh, white apprentice to him um, and that they would go on and create what eventually becomes a, a, a very American sound that has basically influenced the world. Um, and I saw them as sort of an allegory for that type of story. And does that make sense? Yes, it, it does yeah. make sense. Yeah. yeah, very, very much so. Um, if you are just tuning in, you are listening to the Jam Price Show all about movies. And my guest today is V. Scott Balchek. And we're talking about his new documentary, Satan and Adam. And it is a fascinating documentary. So you, when did, at what point did you decide that you were going to start filming this? Um, so after I, I saw them, um, it's ironic at the time I was uh, editing a film for a friend of mine, Craig McTurk, who's actually the co-producer on uh, Satan and Adam. And um, it was his thesis film uh, for, for Cal Arts. And it was about a street singer in Pittsburgh who, who basically uh, he's blind. He's blind. Black street singer who sort of sung for his livelihood, and um, that film ended up winning the Student Academy Award in like '93. And I, I remember talking to Craig, and we were. I was like, "We should. This. They were street musicians. Satan and Adam were street musicians, and we just, you know, you just won this uh, Academy Award for your film that I helped you edit. Let's see if we can get some money for um, the Satan and Adam film." So we tried, and we didn't get any money. <laughs> we, we did. It took us a while, but we got like a small amount of grant money, and that's what. That's how we started shooting. Um, and then the rest uh, was a long journey of. Uh, heartbreak and then finding money and then not having any money and then sterling disappearing and all this stuff happened but so what did happen to sterling because sterling did disappear how long did he disappear for well for me he disappeared um around like 97 98 area and i started shooting in 1995 that's when i got the first uh, grant money to start going on this and then you know so if you look at it from my point of view you know, most docs take like an average, they say like three to four years on average, but I mean, they could take much longer or shorter. Some, some docs are done in a year's period, but they always say it's like a three to four year process. All, all in. So basically I wasn't even at my three year process and he was gone. So I didn't even know, you know, what was going on, but yeah, it was around like 90, 97 ish, 98 ish. And where did he go? And for how long did he go? He, uh, well, he was living in Virginia for a moment, but we were still in contact with him. But then he, when he disappeared, disappeared. It was uh, Florida. He went to. Um, he has family in like the the Tampa region, St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what made him decide to disappear? What was the cause of that? Well, um, he he says that it's a oh, it's a nervous breakdown, but um, and it's in the film. Um, you know, he was nearing sixty at that time. I think yeah, nearing sixty at that time. And I feel like, you know, the way that they toured um, was just rough on him. You know, he, he you know, they, they moved out of Harlem, partly because there was a lot of gentrification going on. He had a bad landlord and um, things just got expensive, I think. And um, he moved with his wife, uh, Miss Macy, uh, to Virginia. And they th- that meant that he had to travel a lot to, to the gigs and travel farther. And, um, you know, as Adam says in the film, there was times when he was just sort of stay in his car and sleep in his car. And I think it just I think it just wore him, wore him out. I mean, the life on the road is is, is really tough. And I think it just it all became just too much for him. Um, but when he disappeared, he literally disappeared. I mean, no one no one could find him. And I think that having a nervous breakdown, I think that his family had intervened um, and uh, probably wanted to get him back back in in their 
in their world and maybe help him to sort of heal from all of that mm-hmm. is my is my thought you know i'm not quite sure all of it but that's kind of how i it went down from from his point of view at least but i'm sure there was more involved that i don't know about so when that happened um did you think well okay this film's over we're not going to be able to do any more with this movie at that stage yeah yeah i did i was i was um I was distraught because I was like, well, maybe I'll just turn it into a, a short film. Or I, I didn't really know what, what, what I was going to do. I was kind of stunned um, in a sense because it was like, it was my first film, you know, as a director. Because I'm, I'm basically an ed- a film editor, you know what I mean, from, from, from the past. So this is like my first film as a, a director. And I was really saddened by the whole thing. Um, but I, yeah, I, I thought it was going to just just be a short a short film and I would just let off. But I, I couldn't, for some reason, I just couldn't let it go. And so... I went out on a sort of path to find him, and I did. And how was this for Adam during this time period? Well, Adam was going sort sort of through his own strife. I mean, in the film, you, you, he, he, I think um, Life on the Road was, was tough for him as well. He actually ended up having a uh, a heart attack around oh, that time. Oh, my goodness. He yeah. was young. He was young. He's young, and, he had, and, I, and I think it goes to show you that there's just a lot of things that weren't right in both of their lives and it it just you know it just all added up to these two events so so for me as a filmmaker i'm like what the what you know i saw the film as them you know this sort of salt and pepper act and rising off the streets of harlem into international acclaim you know and it was all um a sort of a deeper version of a a vh1 behind the music you know you know Mm -hmm, what i'm saying uh and instead it completely uh turned into you know uh, one guy disappears and the other guy sort of, you know, has a mild heart attack. And then so, how did they get back together again? Well, um, I think I was a sort of a catalyst in that area. Um, and uh, another another guy, uh, Kevin Moore, who uh, Sterling eventually went to a nursing home, had to go to a nursing home. Um, his, his health sort of went downhill a little bit. And um, there was a guy there who was the activities director named Kevin Moore. And he kind of sparked to Sterling, and and he, I think he kind of, he definitely helped him um, regain the ability to play guitar. And then, but before that, I I actually went out and did a search on Google to try to find Sterling McGee, and I so I reached out to, I found um, a bunch of phone numbers in Mississippi because I knew he was from Mississippi with the last name McGee. And you could do that on Google. You didn't, I mean, you can only do that starting around like ninety eight or ninety nine. And so I. I called, cold called a bunch of McGee's and um, was hung up on and people were like, don't call here again. And finally, I found like a cousin of Sterling and he was like, oh, he's in Florida. And so I went to Florida and just to see like, am I going to end this movie or am I going to see, you know, we're going to find out if Sterling wants to continue with me. And so those two things, basically um, me discovering him and finding him and going down there and seeing that if he wanted to continue or not um, and making the film in the state that he was in, which was a yes. And then and then when I left, months after that, I think he was admitted to a nursing home, which is kind of like a rehabilitation center. And him meeting this Kevin Moore, who helped him sort of get out of his, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you would call it, I guess, a, a sort of a funk or he just was in a down period of his life. And he helped sort of helped him get his guitar playing back. And he got a m- bunch of musicians around him that brought that thing out of Sterling that he always had, but which just sort of had been submerged a little bit by his uh, his state of mind. You know, you would think that, you know, street musicians, which they were, um, would relish the whole idea of uh, becoming international uh, renowned, uh, and they were, uh, that 
they would be ecstatic by it, but instead it had a negative effect on, on both of them. Um, can you speak to that a little bit, or is that, is, is that true, do you feel? It, it's true in this in the sense that um, I never... I, I don't think Sterling thought that. I thought in his mind he was out of the out of the business, out of the music business. And all of a sudden, this guy Adam comes in and and says, "Hey, let's do this." I mean, people want to hear us. They, you know, they all think you're great and 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 that we're great. And and so Sterling makes a decision to to do it again, but it came at a cost, you know. And he made it's interesting in the film he makes it, that decision because he definitely. He definitely has formed a, a tight relationship with Adam, and he doesn't want to let Adam down. It was, it was almost like a father figure to Adam in mm-hmm. some ways. Okay. So he was like, he was like, I know you, I, I, you're young, and I know you want this, and uh, um, I want it for you. He, he wanted it for himself too, because now Sterling isn't just the side man; he's the main attraction. And so there was a little bit of that too, but it, it did come at a cost because any band can tell you when you tour and you go through the, the rigors of you know being signed and cutting uh, records and and uh, playing out for for your for your living. Um, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I mean, it's exhausting making a film as well, but I would say that being in a band uh, at that time, at least, is probably much, much more. Well, we all know this. We've heard this a million times. Any act performing is like when they go on the road, it's rough, you know? But, they, you know, Satan uh, was an older man, and so I think that... Um, the question you ask is that you know uh, why did that why did that fame kind of like ruin them? And I think that it, it comes it's there's this double edged sword, you know. And I think that you could say that for almost anything. This is true. This is true. So, uh, so when you've premiered this movie in many different film festivals and you've won quite a few awards, that's really exciting. Yes, it yeah, is the the American Film Festival Audience Award winner, Ohio Film Festival Audience Award winner, Nashville Grand Jury Prize, Barbados Best a Festival Documentary Award. Those are really amazing, and you've been in many many um, film festivals. So, how has the reaction been uh, along the way? Have you gone to all of the film festivals with the film and and seen the reaction? How has it been? Yeah, I've been to most most all of them. Not all. Not all, all of them, um, but um, the the reactions are incredible. Um, they kind of blow me away a little bit because it's just like anything. It's like if, when it's your when it's your baby, you kind of lose sight of of you know what you have. But the film just resonates uh, with people and um, always packed, always packed. And in some some, some sense, uh, sometimes there's actually people around the uh, waiting for tickets and stuff like that and can't get in. That's great. That's so, yeah. great. Where can yeah. people see the film Satan and Adam Scott? We um, we are just about to launch a theatrical release, um, which I'm very proud that that we uh, were able to do. Very good. And uh, that's uh, it'll premiere in New York on uh, April 12th. Um, I'm looking at the dates here um, at the Village East Theater in New York, and uh, we're playing at the uh, in Harlem. Uh, on April 13th at the Maisley Cinema, which is a sort of world-renowned cinema in um, or, or cinema in um, Harlem. So I'll be going to Harlem on April 13th, which is my birthday. Very good. Uh, Happy birthday. So, yeah. Thank you. And so, uh, yeah, it's... Um, and then we're, we're uh, doing L.A. on uh, starting on April 19th. And then other places across the U.S. And then, um, yeah, there, there'll probably be more news after that that I probably can't release right now. But, right. yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure having you here, and I wish you much success with Satan and Adam. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been great. Thank you. 
Go to The Jan Price Show on Facebook and learn more about upcoming shows. And while you're there, like my page, but not only like it, write some comments. Let us know that you're listening, what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear, what kind of shows you'd like to have us do. So also to listen to The Jan Price, to, to the Price Movie Minute movie reviews and listen to archive shows that you may have missed, go to thejampriceshow.com. On Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1, streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio, Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show. The Yozio Theater in downtown Monterey is now open every day, showing independent and foreign films. The Yozio Theater has new concession offerings, including beer, wine, hard cider, and their homemade Lush Slush. You can now schedule private event screenings for community charity events, birthdays, anniversaries, or just a fun gathering of friends. For more information, visit the Ozio Theater online at oziotheater.com. 